National Archives podcast series, 20th Century Treasury Records, presented by Mark Dunton. This event was recorded on the 20th of October 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. The Treasury is certainly a formidable-looking department, and one can easily get the impression that it is an unloved institution. Lord David Lipsey began his book, The Secret Treasury, by stating, The Treasury has few friends. Michael Cockerell, the noted BBC documentary maker, called it the Ministry of Tax and Tears. The Treasury is, of course, responsible for formulating and implementing the government's financial and economic policy. The journalist and author Anthony Sampson described it as the central citadel of British government. Its origins can be traced back to the Norman Conquest, or even earlier. The Doomsday Book of 1086, the first public record, has been described as the first tax assessment of England. The term exchequer refers to the chequered cloth that was used to count money by piling it up on squares. What is the Treasury all about? Lord Lawson the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, has commented, the core of the Treasury is its hostility to public spending. So a key function is its control of public spending. So it's inevitable that the Treasury will often be unpopular with ministers who want to spend. On a broader note, the Treasury aims to provide a stable framework for economic policy, as Lord Lipsy puts it. This is far less to do with planning than has been the case in the past. It means promoting competition and free trade, promoting the efficiency and fairness of the tax system and improving the incentives and means to work, the sort of welfare-to-work ideas. The Treasury's fortunes have fluctuated over the years, but in this talk today, I'm going to concentrate on the Treasury in the 20th century. And in this talk, I'm intending to include an historical overview of the Treasury in the 20th century. I'm going to look at the structure of the Treasury before moving on to look at the main record series and then some interesting document examples. First of all, historical overview. Now, the two world wars were the real harbingers of change which shaped today's Treasury. And the wars acted as catalysts, bringing demands for better coordination, uniformity, efficiency, streamlining in government. The First World War sparked the first reshaping of the Treasury with some organisational changes in 1919, which I'm going to refer to shortly. But it was the Second World War and its aftermath which made the Treasury the great coordinator of all the various government activities in the economy because the demands of war on the nation's resources demanded a more sophisticated approach. You could no longer view the economy like a household account in line with 19th century traditions. The ideas of John Maynard Keynes triumphed. The use of levers to influence the economy depending on the circumstances. So that could mean taxing more people heavily during inflationary times to reduce demand or deliberately running budget deficits and pump-priming the economy by spending money on public works during times of recession. The Second World War saw an increasing emphasis on the importance of economic planning, with new agencies of economists and statisticians springing up within government. 
The economic consequences of World War II, the huge debt incurred and the need to rebuild the peacetime economy, meant that the central role of the Treasury in government was guaranteed. So why was there such a massive expansion in the Treasury post-World War II? The main driver of all of this was the huge increase in the state's involvement in the economy and the expansion of the public sector. The reforms of the 45 to 51 Attlee government created a national health service, nationalised a series of industries and increased welfare payments to the old, the infirm and the unemployed. All these areas required Treasury oversight. This expansion of government activity forced changes in the way that the Treasury controlled the expenditure of government departments. The Keynesian approach of direct government intervention in the economy prompted demands for a scientific and statistical analysis of the national economy and required an increase in Treasury numbers of those type of staff. But the 1950s and early 60s saw reviews of the Treasury control of expenditure and a parliamentary committee investigated this matter in 1958. It found that there was no coherent system of Treasury control. It had grown up in a piecemeal fashion. The Treasury carried out a great deal of detailed probing of expenditure in government departments, which was often very pernickety, and doubts were raised about the effectiveness of this approach. There was criticism of Treasury amateurism, The Plowden Committee's report of 1961 put more emphasis on forward planning than a scientific approach. Reforms brought an increase in the authority delegated to government departments to spend within, of course, predetermined limits. For the Treasury, the emphasis switched away from detailed control of the departments to efficient management of them. Now, for a while in the 60s, it looked as if the centre of gravity in terms of economic policy, had shifted away from the Treasury. In 1962, the National Economic Development Council, the NEDC, often referred to as NEDI, was set up. This was a corporatist body which brought together management, trade unions and government. In 1964, some of the responsibility for economic planning and growth was transferred from the Treasury to the new Department of Economic Affairs, the DEA, headed by George Brown. Prime Minister Harold Wilson was keen to use the DEA to bypass the Treasury and go for economic growth in a big way under a five-year national plan. However, the monetary crises of the 60s, the balance of payments problems, the defence of the pound and devaluation in 67, meant that really all the initiatives still rested with the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Treasury. And it was the Treasury that still held the purse strings. The DEA became murrebound and was wound up in 1969 and responsibility for all economic planning reverted to the Treasury. Soon after, in 1970, responsibility for staffing and pay matters, which up to then had been a Treasury matter, was transferred to a new civil service department, meaning that the Treasury could concentrate on its core business of finance and economics. Now, I'd like to go back further in time to talk briefly about the changing structure of the Treasury and then how that's reflected in the Treasury records. Going back, in fact, to 1782, because a Treasury Minute of the 30th of November, 1782, arranged the business of the Treasury under six divisions. 
Thereafter, the number of divisions within the Treasury varied from time to time, but until the First World War, the basis of Treasury organisation was the mixed division. And under this principle, each division dealt with all the affairs of a group of departments. That's the whole lot. Establishment, staffing issues, the whole range. The structure that I've described of each division dealing with all the affairs of a group of departments was gradually modified after the outbreak of the First World War as it became necessary to set up a number of specialist divisions to consider important questions which were being raised in all departments. With this, the war acted as a catalyst, demanding better coordination and streamlining, and there was a gradual move towards shaping relationships of the Treasury and government departments on the grounds of function, rather than lots of one-to-one institutional arrangements. So there was a major reorganisation in 1919, and this created three functional departments, finance, supply and establishments, each headed by a controller. And each of these departments then controlled certain divisions. So the finance department dealt with government borrowing and lending and monetary policy. The supply functions of the Treasury were based on parliamentary control over expenditure by government departments. Parliament voted on annual estimates of expenditure, though these, of course, had to be approved by the Treasury first. And then establishments was concerned with staffing, conditions of service, general standards of recruitment and civil service organisation. And as part of the 1919 reforms, establishment officers were appointed in all the major departments responsible with the Treasury for the supervision and organisation of personnel. This all looks very clear-cut. But in practice, there was still a complicated set of relationships between the Treasury and government departments. The Second World War prompted further changes, and there was also a major reorganisation in 1962, but I'm not planning to go into the details of that here. The division remains the basic administrative unit. It's just that the numbers of divisions expand hugely during the post-war period. I now want to move on to talk about the Treasury Registry System. Why is there this fear, almost, of using Treasury records? It's true that the Treasury Registry Systems prior to 1920 are rather complex, and it is, if you like, a bit of a game following file references through sources such as the wonderfully titled Skeleton Registers. So that's the sort of factor that can put people off. Also, I think there may be an assumption that you have to be a top-notch economic historian to make sense of the records. If you are, all well and good, because you'll find plenty of interest in the records, but my point is that you don't have to be. Perhaps the fearsome reputation of the Treasury, the Ministry of Tax and Tears referred to earlier, perhaps it almost rubs off on the records that it produces. But in this talk... I want to show you that this sort of reaction isn't justified because 20th century treasury records are accessible, illuminating and revealing. And they're also fairly well catalogued, that's the good news. They can be illuminating as the work of the treasury touches virtually every part of daily modern life. They're also revealing about the political considerations that the Chancellor of the Exchequer has to take into account, as I hope to show you. 
I'm going to concentrate on sources from 1920 onwards because in 1920 the registry system for treasury records was reorganised. But just a brief comment about the period 1900 to 1920. For this period, the series T2, the registers of papers, is worth investigating if you want to find out what's being destroyed. Though I don't want to sound... (laughs) Too gloomy. The major set of Treasury papers in T1, which is generally pretty well catalogued from 1909 to 1910 onwards. It is absolutely amazing that T1, the Treasury papers, goes back to 1557. But I'm going to concentrate on the system from 1920 onwards. In 1920, the registry system for Treasury papers was reorganised to reflect the split of the Treasury into three departments, finance, supply and establishments. Note that the files in the general series, T163, contain correspondence which was, by its very nature, of interest to many Treasury divisions. Many of them contain copies of parliamentary bills for comment by several divisions. The superannuation division in T164 was part of the establishment's department and that contains case papers on individual pension or injury compensation awards and policy papers connected with the various superannuation acts. Under this new system, one file related to one subject. Each file reference was prefixed by a letter donating each department or division, shown here on this table as F, S, E, G or P, followed by a number relating to the order of the opening of the file. These were not subject-based. There was a further reorganisation of the registry in 1948, and as a result, a great deal more record series and registry codes come into play, reflecting the expansion of branches and divisions. And in 1975, there was another major reorganisation, and the number of series comes down. But the thing is, unless you're doing a close study of the registry system itself, You don't need to get too hung up about the ins and outs of the filing system or the arrangement of these record series because the descriptions for these records on our online catalogue are fairly good. When I'm on duty in the reading rooms, I think I say this every day without fail, when carrying out keyword searches on our catalogue, it's best often to keep it simple, particularly when searching initially, because often it can be the case that less is more. For example, William Beveridge produced his famous report, I think circa 1942, proposing a comprehensive system of social insurance from cradle to grave, and it became the sort of blueprint for the modern British welfare state. If you were searching for related material in Treasury, it would be wisest to simply search using the term beverage. You could put date parameters on it if you so wish, 1941 to 45. If we then restrict the department or series code to T161, we get 22 results. And of course, you can always click on any one of them. It gives you slightly more context. Here's another example. In 1976, Dennis Healy famously secured a loan from the International Monetary Fund of, I think it was something like £2.3 billion after inflation. And he he, uh, negotiated this in late 1976. If you just simply type in IMF on its own, restrict the year range 1976 to 1976, you get 55 results. So it's looking quite healthy. There are many files on the negotiations, on the conditions for the loan. It's reasonably well catalogued. It's not always catalogued in the kind of detail that we'd all like in the ideal world, but it's not bad. 
And just one further example, sometimes combining words can be good. If you put in the word banking and regulation, let's put no date range, and we'll take another one of those key treasury series, T160, 21 results. So it's, it's just this thing about keeping it simple, thinking laterally about what is likely to work, and that applies, in fact, just in general across the board with our, with our catalogue. I'd like to look at some further Treasury series of importance and some document examples. And we start with the Blue Notes. These cover 1880 to uh, 1968, but there is a gap between 1940 and 1946. What sort of information is in these mysterious-sounding records? Well, the information includes annual estimates, information on the establishment, functions and history of each government department, and these reports were confidential at the time to the Treasury and the Audit Office. These records have been underused, even by Chancellors of the Exchequer. Sir Stafford Cripps, Chancellor of the Exchequer, from November 47 to October 1950, was, of course, famous for his rigid austerity programme. On the 12th of January 1948, he sent a one-sentence query to a Treasury official. What are the blue notes? And here is the response, which usefully sums it up. They are simply a kind of private information service which the Treasury maintain to assist ministers and the Treasury themselves and the other departments to understand how the machinery of government works and what the various parts of it do. And here is Stafford Cripps's reactions to the Blue Notes. These are most interesting and are, I see, for the assistance, amongst others, of ministers. I have now been a minister for nearly six years, but I've never heard of them or seen them. I don't suppose any of my colleagues have either. Would it not be a good thing to present every minister with a set? I should like one anyway. Uh, he's obviously convinced of their worth. The notable aspect of the Blue Notes is that they can be rich in detail. Take this example relating to Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, dated 1909 to 1910. You can find unexpected information in sources like these, one might be surprised to learn that the prison authorities set store on beer as a reward for industrious prisoners. I'm just going to quote from the document. At Bethlehem, a patient who is employed in any kind of useful work was allowed two pints of beer daily if a man and one and a half pints if a woman. At Broadmoor, the daily quantity is three quarters of a pint for a man and half a pint for a woman and industrious habits are rewarded in a manner which is considered preferable to the grant of an additional allowance of beer. Blue notes from other periods actually set out the weekly canteen menu at Broadmoor. The blue notes were updated at various rates, usually every year in the early 20th century and every five years post-war, and although they're underused, they are a good place to start for any historian wanting to find out about a government department and how it worked. Now we move on to the precedent books. The precedent books in T211 recorded in brief detail important decisions altering departmental or government policy. Treasury staff were asked to record the precedents in a separate series of books from the Central Registry File Registration System. The precedent books in T211 
cover the period 1920 to 1948 only. After 1948, precedent files can be found in the general run of branch or division series. If you're wanting to search in this series, step one is to browse the list for this series, either online on the catalogue or you could just go to the paper list. And the records are arranged by division. So this sequence you can see here is for the supply divisions. And then it's arranged in sort of year groupings, so generally 1920 to 1930, then 1930 to 48. And then you get these subject groupings where the Treasury will have its finger in the pie. And here is an example from a precedent book. And if we look at the top entry, this reads, Explosion of Admiralty Lighter in the port of Leghorn, Italy. Compensation claims in res, respect that is, of damage to property. Admiralty under no legal obligation to pay, but do so as a matter of policy. C. Compensation. The date of Treasury decision column isn't filled in, but a clerk has written 1918 very faintly. There's a file number in this column here, which is S12978. It is actually possible to do a former reference search using this number in our catalogue, though you have to put a full stop after the S, which isn't very obvious, is it? The S stands for supply. If you do this, you'll bring up the catalogue reference to this file, which is uh, T161-145. But alternatively, you could do a keyword search. I think that would work equally well if you just pick out one or two of the keywords from there. It's important to note that not all the files cited in the precedent books have survived. Further down here, there's uh, a mention of buildings in Iraq destroyed by fire, probably due to incendiarism. That record doesn't survive. But we are getting a good indication of the huge range of decisions that the Treasury is involved in. A useful, but again underused series, is the series T267, Treasury Historical Memoranda. These notes were written for internal Treasury consumption. They can be seen as representing the Treasury view on any major long-running issue. They're rather like unpublished official histories, and they provide an excellent introduction to the major policy issues in post-war Britain. Here's an example which illustrates the full scope of the Treasury's activities. Treasury Historical Memorandum Number 1. The Treasury and Acts of God. There is nothing beyond its scope. This document is dated November 1957 and it concentrates on cases where the government has intervened to help counter the effects of severe floods and storms. So you can see on what occasions has financial help been given, and it's all listed here. You know, the 1947 floods are mentioned, and the East Coast floods of 1953, and so forth. And the subject of this Treasury Historical Memorandum is obviously no small beer. In the words of the introduction, it concerns the final collapse of the international monetary system which had served the Western world tolerably well since the end of the Second World War. It's all about the end of the system of fixed exchange rates with the dollar linked to gold. In fact, Gordon Brown called for a new Bretton Woods international agreement in October 2008 to guard against a repeat of the global financial meltdown. T171 is a very rewarding series of records. It contains budget and finance bill papers produced by the Chancellor of the Exchequer's office. And this is an extract 
from a budget papers file from 1974 when Dennis Healy had just taken over as Chancellor. The file is concerned about VAT. An official in Customs and Excise sent a note about possible VAT concessions and as a starting point for this, he attached a schedule, part of which is shown here, describing the items for which zero rating, VAT-wise, was being sought by amendments put down by Labour MPs during the course of the Finance Bill of 1972, when Labour was in opposition. So it's actually referring back to 1972, but they're looking at these proposals that were made then by Labour MPs when they were in opposition about categories of item which could be perhaps zero rated for VAT and what it would cost. The first column shows the mover of the amendment and then you've got the goods or services involved and then the third column shows the revenue cost. It's a great example of how the work of the Treasury affects virtually every aspect of life. I wonder if um, the MPs, in a way, were sort of almost having a bit of fun, in a way, with suggesting some of these amendments. Not all of them were actually called for voting on at the time. I note that uh, Ray Carter proposed zero rating on alcoholic beverages. No estimate was possible of the cost to the Exchequer there, obviously massive. It's interesting to note Dennis Healy's favoured categories, which include gramophone records, that sounds wonderfully quaint now, that phrase, at the estimated cost of £8 million. It's interesting to see that, that sort of entry for Dennis Healy because uh, when he was Chancellor, he actually introduced VAT on a number of goods and services. Returning back to 1974, the customers and excise officials' rather dry message for Chancellor Healy is... I cannot recommend any of the items as outstanding candidates for zero rating in the forthcoming budget. T171 is very rewarding and illuminating about the budgetary process. There are files about the Chancellor's meetings with advisers. There are files recording the decisions taken on indirect tax, personal tax, the timetable arrangements for budgets. In addition to all of that, there are papers relating to the parliamentary debates and the Chancellor's speeches and broadcasts the presentational side of things, and I'd like to just show you a couple of examples of this. So on the presentational side of things, here we have the first page of the first draft of Dennis Healy's March 1974 budget speech. And this budget was presented just three weeks after Labour returned to power. It begins, I open, as usual, with a short review of the British economy in 1973, a review which has more than usual relevance since it must describe the legacy I inherited from the previous government three weeks ago. These were, of course, very difficult times. Britain had gone through a huge increase in oil prices, a miners' strike and a three-day week. Inflation was rising and stock markets were crashing throughout the world. So he's very much emphasising the legacy that he inherited from the previous government and he's mentioning... A lot of doom and gloom factors all the way down here, essentially. In the files, we see the concern for getting the presentation right and the political considerations. This is a memo from Douglas Allen, Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, giving his reaction to the draft budget speech, and I quote, I think that one or two passages in the first section of the speech need a certain amount of toning down if they are not to cause the Chancellor embarrassment of one kind or another in the coming months. There is the same danger as in 1964 of stressing the horrors of the inheritance 
and then failing to have a budget which is regarded by holders of sterling as relevant to the situation. We must bear in mind, too, that many of the indicators that looked bad in 1973 are going to look much worse in 1974, and that it can hardly be argued that the budget proposals will make very much difference to them. So there's a large dose of sober realism reflected in that last sentence. And Douglas Wass goes on to make his detailed suggestions for amendments. It does make you think about the relative power balance between ministers and officials, civil servants. The economic situation was even more grim in March 1975 as Dennis Healy prepared to introduce a budget that was, in his own words, rough and tough. This is an extract from a draft paper on the need to make significant public expenditure cuts in 1976-77, setting out the line that the Chancellor wanted Treasury ministers to take in explaining to government colleagues the need to make the cuts. It's quite dramatic. You know, our immediate problems are daunting. Inflation at home continues at a rate far above that of our competitors and anything we have known in this country before. Talks about the large public sector deficits uh, externally. We still face an enormous deficit while our ability to borrow abroad, on which the maintenance of our industrial activity and our standard of living are dependent, is deteriorating. So once again, the records show in a powerful way the recurring and familiar theme of economic crisis. Moving to a conclusion. Referring back to my opening remarks about the impression you can receive that the Treasury is an unloved institution, I think that Lord Lipsy, in his book The Secret Treasury, puts the case for the Treasury simply and eloquently when he states that if the Treasury did not exist, it would have to be invented. He goes on to make the point that at least two Treasury functions are essential to any system of government, providing a stable framework for economic policy and control of the overall level of public spending. After all, as Lipsy puts it, ministers' bids for public spending always exceed the amount of money which could plausibly be made available to them. The work of the Treasury touches virtually every part of daily modern life, and the records reflect that. And I hope that now, at the end of this talk, no one is feeling like the central character of the Scream painting with regard to the Treasury records. We've seen that the 20th century Treasury records are fairly well catalogued. You don't have to get completely immersed in all the different registry systems because they are accessible through keyword searches. So I'm saying don't be scared of these records. Order some up, look into them, and they can be very illuminating. It can be very revealing about the broad political considerations that the Chancellor of the Exchequer has to take into account. I would encourage anyone with an interest in modern history to investigate what the Treasury records may have to offer for their particular subjects of interest. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.